before we get into this week's episode of the Proper Mental Podcast, I've got a little favour to ask. It's the end of the year and that means it's time for the Pod Bible magazine listener polls for 2022. And I'd be really grateful if you could vote for my podcast in the independent category. Obviously, it's lovely when I get nominated or win awards because I put a lot of time and effort and care into making this podcast. But the main reason I would like your vote is because I believe that one of the best ways to raise awareness around mental health and to normalise the type of conversations that I'm having is to break out of the regular mental health spaces. And the Pod Bible listener polls have categories for film and comedy and lifestyle and entertainment and all that stuff, but that's not what I do. And I think this is a great opportunity to get this podcast and the subject of mental health into a different demographic of listener. And then maybe it can reach someone who really needs to hear it, but doesn't yet know that it exists. It's also really cool that these awards have a section that is exclusively for independent podcasts because let's face it us indies tend to get passed over by the big boys and girls and it would just be awesome to shine a bit of a light on what I'm doing and hopefully like I say that way it can help a few more people there's a link in the episode notes it's really easy and you don't have to vote in all the categories if you don't want to you can skip to the last one and just type proper mental into the box there's no need to sign up or to log on or do any of that stuff all in all it takes about a minute it's just a few taps on your phone screen and it would really mean a lot to me if you could take the time to help me out voting closes on december the 31st at midnight but don't wait till then go in the episode notes find the link click it now. Thank you very much for listening. Now that's out of the way, let's crack on with this week's episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. Welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. Welcome to episode 111 of the Proper Mental Podcast. My guest this week is William McCarthy, who is a musician, a songwriter, a singer. He's an author, a podcaster, and he's probably best known for being the former singer in the band Augustines, who released three albums between 2011 and 2016, and they toured all over the world with a who's who of modern rock and roll. Bill grew up around addiction and poverty and mental illness. And when he was 19, his mother died by suicide after many years of addiction and deteriorating mental health issues. His younger brother was also diagnosed with a mental illness and died by suicide whilst being held in prison without trial and without receiving any of the proper care and support that he needed. And it was these experiences that inspired the band's debut album, Arisey Sunken Ships, and that was written by Bill, and it was named Best Alternative Album by iTunes in 2011. And both the story of Bill's childhood and the story of his band were told in the documentary Rise, The Story of Augustines, and that came out in 2018. And Bill has travelled back and forth across America. He's hitchhiked it, and he's done it on his motorbike multiple times, and he's toured the world with his band, and he has some incredible stories to share from his travels. He was recently been playing music and talking about mental health to young people on a tour of Canadian schools. And in this episode, we sit down to chat all about it. We chat about Bill's upbringing, the challenges he faced and how they led him to hit the road and live a creative lifestyle. We chat about being in a band, life on the road. We chat about mental illness and how it's misreported by the media and how that informs the stigma and the misunderstanding. We talk about human connection and compassion and the need for good role models. And it's just a wonderful chat. Bill is one of my favourite singers 
Augustine's are one of my favourite bands. They're actually my wife's favourite band of all time. So his voice and his words and his music have sort of soundtracked some quite big moments in our life, really. So it was really special for me to get a chance to sit and have a chat with Bill. And he's just the loveliest man, and he had so much value to add to the conversation. I've put links in the episode notes to everything that Bill does, so please go and check him out. These days he's 100% independent, so everything he does is via Patreon or via Bandcamp. So go and have a look and see what he's up to. He's got new music there, he's got tour dates there, he's got his podcast, you can get that through his Patreon. And of course, there's all the links there to how to find him on social media and all that stuff. I've also put in the episode notes a link to the trailer for Rise, the story of Augustine's, the documentary about Bill and the band. Watch the trailer, get the film. You can get it on Amazon Prime. I think it's on HBO as well. It's an incredible watch. You don't have to be a big music fan. You don't have to be a big Augustine's fan. But if you're a fan of just the human condition and keeping going in the face of adversity and being brave and showing up and all those things. It's a challenging watch. It's a beautiful watch. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Go and give it a watch. As usual, you can get in touch with me at Proper Mental Podcast in all the usual places. There's links to all that in the notes. There's links to my website. That's the best place to get in touch. And of course, it's obligatory, isn't it? I have to ask you to leave a review. And if you could do that for me, that would be wonderful. If you're a big music fan or you really enjoyed this episode and we're looking for something along the same lines, I definitely recommend going through the back catalogue. I've recorded an episode with Frank Turner. That was an amazing episode. And it's all about Frank's experiences of mental ill health and addiction and stuff like that. I've also recorded an episode with Ian Winwood, who is a Kerrang! journalist of over 30 years. And we talk about mental health and how it's impacted by the music industry. And he has stories about bands like Green Day and Biffy Clyro and Yard Act and all sorts of other amazing anecdotes. So I'd highly recommend that one as well. This is episode 111 of the Proper Mental Podcast with William McCarthy. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. Super, so I'll just do a... uh... Excuse me, just a little intro, mate, and we can dive dive straight in. Love it, man. Cool. So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast, and my guest today is Mr. Bill McCarthy. How are you, mate? I'm well. I'm well, man. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, mate, thank you so much for joining me. I really, really appreciate it. Really, really appreciate it. Hey, it's good work you're doing, man. I'm happy to be here. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. And, um, you know, speaking of... of doing good work you're not long back from um from canada right doing some mental health related talks over there is that right bill absolutely man yeah i just i i just came in really recently i was up there for a couple of weeks up in uh the very northern parts of manitoba right. and it was sort of a passion project for me and i was working behind the scenes to get this sort of idea off the ground and it went like beautifully really inspiring experience Oh, wow. Um, how did you decide what to talk about, mate? Because I think it's like with the mental health conversation, it's so like so vast, you know. So when someone says, oh, do you fancy coming to uh, over to our school for a chat? How do you uh, how do you go about putting something together? What's your method, mate? Wow. I think like everything that I've been doing as a solo uh, artist, I think it's just really about community and just networking, much like you and I have just networked to make this happen. Um, that was one of the benefits of 
my solo path was that um, gone is the management and the tour bus and the uh, the lights and the sound guy and the whole the band and all of it. And I'm I was sort of at an intersection um, at some point uh, when I went solo and I had to decide like what kind of a career I wanted and and I realized that I loved the tour bus and I loved the big the big rock show and the festivals and that stuff but you're kind of uh you're kind of off alone like away from the public in many ways and which is actually it's lovely in its own right but I just felt after years of doing it that way that I was I was kind of missing out on humans, really. So when I took this step uh, as a solo artist, it wasn't completely by design. I just started interfacing with people more and I just thought, wow, this feels really good. And I like people a lot, you know? And I think uh, the way that modern entertainment is sort of laid out, um, we we don't get to mix with people so much, right? Um, yeah. there's, there's the backstage and there's the... There's that kind of uh, configuration, and it was it was it was great. Except for I did get a bit lonely, and I felt like I was just really missing out um, on so much. Like for example, yesterday I was just in Brussels, and uh, I was there, and I was thinking, man, it, it's as if I've never been here before. But I've played that place many times, <laughs> and it's just it's so bizarre how you can have a career and you just really don't get to see the places where you're um where you're, where you're playing very 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 much so yeah yeah i mean that's um, such a yeah. sorry mate yeah that's such a wonderful point i've never really thought about that from the from the artist or from the band's perspective especially because like mm. live music it's all about coming together and shared experience um but then i suppose like the crowd get to do that and then you get to share some of that and then it's like right ta now we've got to be the other end of the country by tomorrow so i'll just see you later <laughs> it must be uh, yeah <laughs> i've never really thought of it like that but um it makes a lot of sense but you hear all these great stories of like wow i met my wife at, at an Augustine's show and I proposed to her, you know, two years later, or, uh, you know, you hear these really cool stories. I, I, I bumped into an old roommate and now we've started a business together. You, you hear all these great stories and you're like, wow, what about, what about me? Like I was, <laughs> uh, and it's funny because Dave Chappelle, the comedian, he's talked a lot about this, that in his uh, post Dave Chappelle show and his journey. Now he kind of, he'll arrive to a, a place that he's playing a couple days early actually and he'll meet up with friends and he'll meet up with people and kind of he's doing it his way now and i totally understand and support that way of doing it because uh there's a lot of there's a it's a big world out there and there's a lot of places to tour and and you're right it's kind of go 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 yeah i suppose there's something as well about maybe if you are on the you know, doing it with the bus and with the team and all that, then it's almost like you, you're just kind of on a treadmill, I suppose, you know, just kind of rolling through towns and onto the next. And that must be quite a strange experience in itself. It, strange is a good word for it. It was, <laughs> it was quite surreal. It was almost like a pod, like the tour bus was this strange pod that you would, you would pull, you know, you would pull into a town like while you're sleeping because you have a driver and you wake up in a parking lot. And you're like, wow, so we're in Leeds. Okay, this is Leeds. But like, <laughs> like with, you know, with the confines of a, 
of a parking lot and like whatever you could get to on foot that day uh, without trying to expend all your energy. That's kind of what you would see of the place. And then you would hide uh, after sound check kind of backstage or on the bus. And then, <laughs> and then uh, the show's over and you go to sleep and you wake up in Wales or, you know, France. And you're like, okay. So you're seeing such a limited part of, of the whole experience. Yeah, sure. I can tell. I mean, when you describe it like that, mate, I can really uh, tell why you would miss that connection with with the people and the places that you visit. And I think particularly given the nature of your music and Augustine's were very much a fans band. Right. And that's kind of like your, yeah. your role as a musician now is very much sort of, um, you know, in amongst the people that listen to your music. So I can totally see why um, why you decided to go like the other way with it almost. <laughs> it, again, it wasn't completely by design. It was sort of a slow a slow realization that that had happened uh, because yeah, it, it's a funny thing. I call it indie music. I don't know what, what, what the term is that people like to use, but it's like independent music uh, in and of itself was really um, indie short for independent. And what that was, was really, I'm not unknown and I'm not like a, a celebrity. I'm in this weird middle place uh, that is what, what was so cool about the indie kingdom um, if we could call it that, was that you could kind of meet your your heroes or meet people that you really had admired or at least be in a room with them in a, in a, I guess, a casual context, maybe after the show or whatever, and they weren't unreachable. You know, you could maybe find them and write to them and they could, you know, they could interface with you. And that's what I've always thought was cool about it. It was a little bit more freewheeling, a lot more uh, freedoms, I guess, creatively and and the independent path uh, is it's beautiful for that because I've seen a little bit of the kind of upper tier of the, you know, um, the, the, the people wanting to do selfies with you and, and the kind of the bigger you get, the kind of more isolated you get. And it, it really is kind of a tricky thing because you're getting to kind of be more of a globe trotting uh, entity and that you're doing maybe Australia and Italy and, you know, Texas and, you know, all these cool Canada, all these places, but uh, you, you, you struggle to have a human connection past your music. And I just felt like it, it's such, it's such a, it's such a disservice really, because that's, that's what makes being an artist cool is, is the human inter interaction and the exchange that's happening. Right. So yeah. as I got, as I went through the solo thing, I started spending more kind of quality time with people and really hearing their stories. And I started realizing, wow, my, my, my heart, my, the inside of, of me is really pulling me towards people. And I could really, I could really give a shit about the radio and, and, all the, and, and that stuff. Really. I like humans. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, that's such a, um, important thing when it comes to our own mental health isn't it is that connecting with other people and you know if you chase our origins back to you know we used to live in tribes and like now mm. a lot of people they don't even know their next door neighbor's name you know and that, that has sure. to be a factor in in how we feel about ourselves you know is the the people that are around us and the connection that we have with other human beings yeah man and there's there's a lot to get into in this in this discussion because i've i've been noticing it i built a studio in California. And uh, I was basically looking for studio space and my older sister offered me some space and I built a studio there and I had these 
very interesting observations kind of coming on and off the road, going on and getting off the road and coming back to this essentially a suburban landscape. And I started noticing some, I guess, mental health um, topics at play in a suburban context that I thought was very interesting, just observations. And I just found that one of the things that I found to be very curious about that, that landscape was that I, I, with people with a kind of car culture in America, I found that something that was really missing was people actually mixing with each other, right? You've got, you've got drive-through food, you've got delivery, you've got Amazon, you've got all this stuff, but there's one like elephant in the room is that people aren't really mixing. And so if you, it takes a village to raise a child as the old saying goes, right? And so you've, I noticed there was a lot of really strange kind of um, teenage energy, a lot of like peeling out of parking lots, a lot of loud um, music, like that was kind of not really respectful to the neighborhood and a lot of just kind of alpha, angry young person energy. And I was thinking, wow, so, cause if we were in Cuba or Africa, or we were uh, maybe in an, an indigenous community, you would kind of be minding your elders a little bit more, but I felt like the car culture kind of fostered this um, pent up thing. And it was, really unique to be around that coming from say Ireland or different places that I had been playing and touring. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You know, I can kind of see that in, um, you know, in a lot of different aspects of, of modern life. And I suppose I had a, sure. a guest on uh, one guy called um, an artist called Gary Mansfield and a quote that he said to me that really stood out. He said, you can only have care in the community if the community fucking cares is what he said. Right. And mm. um, I love that because that's that sort of thing, isn't it? The more we drift from each other, the more we drift from yeah. our local community, the less we care about it. So the less we contribute to it. So the more it slides and then we've got less to care about. And it's kind of, we find ourselves in a, in a vicious circle where we end up pulling further away from, you know, things that are are meant to pull us closer together. Yes. And that spectrum, it starts maybe from being a little bit irreverent, say, you know, buying a coffee all the way to, and I'm, I know this sounds dramatic, but to how the hell does this, to, does a schoolyard massacre happen, right? Mm. And you start start realizing that when we're kind of rope swinging from social media to web page, from web page to X, Y, and Z, like how does this person get isolated like this? And I think that I I I would in modern life, you know, I was just at the airport and I was trying to find some help. I missed a connection on a train. And I was really kicking myself about it. And then I said, wait, hold on a second. There's nobody on the floor to direct you. It's, you know, we're getting sort of, um, we're getting sold this kind of check in yourself kind of thing at airports and train stations and uh, download the app kind of thing. Go ahead and download the app and just check yourself in. And it's like this, the human thing is really lacking. So I found myself missing a train and I was really kicking myself that there was a zoom out thing going on that like uh, businesses are kind of taking their players off the field, <laughs> as it were, you know, and so you yeah. end up in this situation, like, how did I end up feeling this way? And in this state, and I'm really mad at myself. And it's like, I don't know, 
I don't know if I got here alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a really interesting point, isn't it? By not having, you know, yeah, people to check with, people to lean on, people to uh, to ask and sound things out about, then you do end up, you know, yeah, doing stuff on your own and um, making mistakes and then beat yourself up for it. That's really, I've never really thought about that, but that's, um, yeah, yeah, that's really uh, interesting. So was it, Absolutely. sorry, Bill, but with that in mind, um, and then you go over to Canada and you're like speaking to these schools. Well, I, yeah. I often quite think when we like, we chat to the kids and the youth, they're like, you know, it's almost them that show us the way, right? So sure. we go, you know, they're so much better at the at the community and the connection and the taking on new ideas because it hasn't been like pulled out of them by society yet. So was that cool to kind of, you know, with all that disconnection stuff we've just talked about, to then be in front of a room full of children and have that kind of that energy and that that curiosity that that sort of stuff brings? Yeah, it, it's you know, I'm I've been really vocal about my my development and my upbringing and uh, what I was facing and a lot, you know, there's, there was a, a lot to say to young people, but I really, what I found myself feeling like when I was that age was I was at a, I was really at odds with, with adults. You know, I didn't, I felt like they weren't looking out for my best interests. I guess I, I just felt like they were, they were kind of, scrutinizing me all the time and I just I didn't really care for adults and when I look back at the ones that stand out to me I could fit the I guess inspirational type of adults that that connected with me I could fit them all literally on one hand and that's really kind of sad and speaking to these young people I was talking to them about the glory that is expression and rock and roll I chose rock and roll and rock and roll in its inception was like a youthful rebellion, right? And it was very interesting standing in front of the faculty, in front of the community, in front of uh, kids, and talking to them about uh, the <laughs> the healing nature of rock and roll, which was it was strange to be the age of of some of the faculty and looking at them and seeing our are you checked out? Are you inspired? Are you present? Is this just a job? Are you, you know, counting the days until retirement? Because those were the, some of the feelings that I had when I was a kid, that something's not quite right here. Some of these, some of these adults don't, don't feel engaged. And I have to say that, you know, it, it was interesting. This I could kind of see it through, um, uh, teenagers eyes and then standing shoulder to shoulder with them as an I guess for lack of a better word an educator I was it was odd seeing both perspectives up there does that make sense yeah yeah it really does yeah definitely I think it's really important isn't it as we get older and we journey through life to like try and still like remember what it was like to be a young person you know and like you kind of like, I don't know even now I'm at an age where like I hear some of the the more the modern music that's coming out and my first thought is like oh you know that sounds a bit rubbish and then my thought was like mm. well hang on now I, like I'm supposed to find it rubbish that's the point you know that's mm. the point of like generations having their music that old people don't understand that's kind of like that's that's that's, that's what it's all about right that rock and roll rebellion yeah. that you mentioned before identity yes yeah yeah and um so you're you mentioned you briefly touched on your um you know your upbringing there bill and uh, that's kind yeah. of it would i be right in saying that that is why um you're so passionate about mental health because sort of mental illness was a big part of your life from a from a very young age a hundred percent a hundred percent man and you know it's it's funny as a centerpiece to the whole 
topic, I guess, mental health is the zoom out realization that, okay, that's what was happening. But, uh, you know, I think at the time, what it looked like being immersed in it was poverty. And so you find yourself in poverty, but I guess we could call these social challenges. And that that is what I'm passionate about, because I think that it, it, it can very easily look like, you know, bipolar or schizophrenia, um, or, you know, other challenges like autism, or people being on the spectrum, or so on, that then you, you know, you could pepper in some alcoholism, drug abuse, and so on, it just becomes this kind of mismatch of, of just things not being really healthy. And I do feel very passionate about young people being in that environment, because what I very quickly realized, I, the, the very first time I ever spoke to a school was actually in Belfast. And I got invited to Northern Ireland to speak at a school. And it was really amazing to see these guys and to hear their stories, right? And what I find that's uh, the word that stands out to me when I think about this is vulnerability. So you've got a young person that's not completely developed um, and they're not really, uh, they're not really, I guess, connected to the ways of the world yet, just for lack of, of their development, not, you know, not having lived a whole, a whole lot of time yet. And then you've got you know, social challenges around them to where maybe their parents have grown up in poverty and it's like a intergenerational trauma thing going on. And then you've just got this vulnerable young person that is probably hiding out online at night, um, trying to connect somehow. And what I found when I was a young person was that, and this was part of my message to these, these young guys, is that like, you know, I had so many people telling me like well music's clearly a bad idea expressing yourself is is a terrible idea you're going to end up in a gutter someday what do you really want to be and i think that looking back over my my own biography music was the perfect thing it wasn't easy but it was a great idea to express everything that had happened and i often found myself in rooms where the entire room was wrong and I was right, or my entire town was wrong on the subject of maybe, um, maybe like, for example, growing up gay, or like dealing with, with, with having to get your head around that, like, will I be shunned? Will I be discarded? What will happen to me if I tell these people who I really am? And I found that my town was very much wrong, and they were not correct in their advice. And it was very difficult to find older people to help guide me. And so I ended up turning to records, you know, albums and uh, music culture. And it really did steer me out of it. So I kind of wanted to be somewhat of a lighthouse for young people and say, hey, um, you might find that <clears throat> when people are asking you who you want to be, maybe the best thing to say to them is, um, who am I going to be? I'm going to be me. And that's enough. And that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And that is beautiful. And I think that um, it's all, it's, it's a hard thing to do, right? It's a hard thing mm. to do to really kind of find that level of um, authenticity and find out exactly who you are. Um, it's, it's, mm. it's very much, it's very easy to fall into this pattern of like people pleasing and shape shifting. And I'm talking about from my own experience here, you know, um, it can take a lot of work to sort of find out who you are and then the bravery to stand there and say, yeah, this is, 
this is me and this is what I'm all about. It's um, it's a big deal. Very much. And I think, I mean, when I look back at my own journey, I was from a village um, or in American speak, a small town. And I, I put out a record once with my first band, uh, Pela, called Any Town Graffiti. And Any Town is a term for kind of anywhere USA, like nothing special. It's not really, I don't think it's a class reference. It's more of just, it's kind of a sensory thing, like kind of Dullsville, you know, just. And so I found that I had to sort of stand with like fortitude and, and, and self-reliance I had to stand and and aspire to be a part of something that I had actually never really seen and I didn't know how to find and I didn't know the path but I felt like this stuff that uh maybe David Bowie is talking about or Joe Strummer talking about that is my tribe I don't know how to find them but I believe that to be my tribe and it was it was kind of gut-wrenching a little bit to find my way out of uh, being immersed in a in a village, a small town, and stand for something that I really had never crossed paths with. <laughs> it sounds so funny to say it now, but that's the truth. Yeah, yeah, sure. How how did um how did that happen, Bill? How did you end up sort of um you know hit, hitting the road and going in search of this um of this life that you knew knew was out there? Well, that's that's a great question. It was it, they were sort of um there were sort of some half starts and, and stumbles. I, in America, we have something called the Greyhound bus and the Greyhound as you know, the Greyhound is basically affordable transportation uh, for, for people. And they used to have a special when I was a kid, it was $99 coast to coast. So you could get on a bus and if you could stomach it, you could ride that thing from New York city to Los Angeles for one way for $99. I guess you would have in Europe, you'd probably have like Eurorail, I guess something similar. Yeah. yeah um, we have the, um, the mega bus in the UK. You do. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You have the mega bus, man. So in my very early, uh, it, it misadventures were on your mega bus and I would, I would work at my terrible pizza job or my construction job or whatever I was doing. And I would, I would get up enough money and I would just kind of go somewhere, you know, to a festival or, and I would literally just, it was a very one way ticket type of uh, life. You know, I would, I would get somewhere and I would have to figure out how to get home. I think my very first one, I had a friend that had joined the Marines. This is going way back into village life. And it was a lovely guy named Colin McGinnis and he had loaned some money to a Marine and he had gone AWOL. He had jumped the fence and left the military and he was quite scared and he didn't, it didn't, it wasn't for him and he didn't know what to do. And he wanted to go get some, this money that he had loaned somebody to another soldier. And he asked me if I would go with him, but it was about a 24 hour train ride away. So I think he offered to pay for my ride up there to collect this money with him. He didn't want to go alone. And we went all the way up to, which sounded like, you know, another planet, a place called Seattle. And we went all the way up to Seattle in the nineties and we went looking for this guy and we got, we got uh, separated and I ended up 
you know, having been, I guess, like a small town guy that played baseball that kind of used to draw pictures by himself and strum his guitar terribly. Uh, I went from that to suddenly to suddenly being through this happenstance that happened with a friend of mine, homeless. I was homeless in Seattle at like 17 years old. And I remember taking my duffel bag and hiding it like in a parking garage and sort of wandering around and seeing for the first time buskers and uh, gay people and um, homeless people and drugs and all this stuff. And it didn't take me very long um, before I realized I had to do something. And I actually, I hopped a train. I hopped a, uh, I guess a passenger train and I hid in the bathroom when the conductors would come by and I rode it uh, for a couple days all the way back home. And I jumped out when I got to my, my town in California and I realized like, well, I think back then with my mental capacity was like, wow, that was crazy. But what I, what really had happened was that I had, with my own agency, I had grabbed life by the scruff of the neck and done something. Yeah. And it, it, and it was like, whoa, there's kind of, so there's very early explorations that happened again and again. I, I ended up in the Southwest in Arizona in a very similar mishap, um, going to a festival with some friends. And I managed to hitchhike back with my thumb. I got, I went on the highway and ended all the way back, you know, 20 hours back home. And then later on when I was 19, I did it all the way out to New York City and I visited New York City for the first time and I got myself back home and it started like that. And then when I was about 22, I managed to get myself to Ireland. And so that's kind of how it all started. Yeah. Wow. And I suppose that kind of like really, I suppose, sets the foundation then, right, for that touring life that we were talking about at the start and, you know, that sort of, uh, yeah, town to town, place to place. It's uh Incredible, mate. What? Yeah. It, it, what was fascinating about it is, is I, I st still play my guitar, my acoustic guitar, and the very same guitar that I had back then, I still have. So this guitar, um, I, I very quickly realized, I, if I opened up the case on the street and played, I could get some tips. Like, and essentially, I was busking. And I felt like a failure at the time because I couldn't start a band um, because I wasn't coming in contact with, with musicians. I you know, didn't have the money for a studio. There was all these things that I sort of felt bad about. But again, that zoom out, the zoom out was is that I was learning self-reliance and I was depending on my music uh, to sustain me. And it kind of happened um, naturally and, you know, that took me all the way to New York City again later on in life and that's how I started uh you know my journey with Eric and Pela and Augustine's yeah wow that's incredible mate and it is <laughs> I think something that's really interesting to talk about is um the relationship between um like mental health and the music sure. industry and, and the music industry right because it like sure. I mean you, Augustine's uh famously had a had a, a rough a rough ride of it and that must have been a a challenge for you to kind of, um, you know, to, to chase that dream and sort of start to realize it and then realize, Oh, hang on, just cause I've like, I've got a band and there's interest in this band. It's not necessarily going to be, 
plain plain sailing you know and how did you sort of mm. yeah how did you like look after yourself through that that process bill where's your own mental health at when all this sort of stuff is going on it's a great question man uh well so i guess the abridged version is that i had moved to new york city 9-11 happened so i was there for that and i saw basically the western world um kind of knocked off its block in many ways. And then I saw a sort of impending doom and fear and uh, anxiety happen about, um, I guess, Islamophobia and terrorism, right? So I went through that experience. And after 9-11, there was no jobs and I had just moved there. So I started playing in the subway and to sustain myself for, for you know, to eat. And yeah, I met yeah. Eric through this and we, we went through the, the kind of the naughties, I guess, um, the 2000s. We went through the India experience, which was very much a feeding frenzy. And I had inadvertently moved to New York City just because, well, for personal reasons, I just wanted to be in the, the biggest, baddest jungle that was possible in, in America. And, you know, we went through those 9-11 years and there was there was an industry feeding frenzy on signing bands and it happened. It seemed like everybody was sort of getting picked up except for us. And uh, this is, this is covered a lot in the, in the rise film, but you know, we had started working on our second record after having, you know, minor success, I guess, and just being able to tour. And there's another character that comes into play here with mental health because as I think I'm, I'm sure as people know, I had a brother in prison, my little brother, and he was schizophrenic. And back then there was very little, this is before Robin Williams, before um, Scott Hutchinson. This is before a lot of, you know, Amy Winehouse. Before all of that, uh, I found that um, I didn't have, I guess, the business chops to fight these kind of legal this bullying that was happening in the music business, I didn't have the um, chops to really manage having a sibling um, in prison and deal with like, you know, a district attorney and those type of things to try to help him. And it was a very powerless feeling. And the only thing I could control was songwriting. And so I, I very quietly, um, you know, again, in a very unknown kind of indie band started writing lyrics about what I was going through. And I think the reason that I got the courage to do that was that I felt like nothing was going to come of my music career and that I might as well just be as honest as I could with the time that I had. And so I started writing um, these type of songs about my family and what it had, what we had gone through with mental health. And ultimately the wheels fell off the wagon, you know, and I ended up kind of um, alone. My brother passed away um, from suicide in prison and he was schizophrenic and he should have never been in prison because I'm not sure. I mean, it's a great topic as well. How much criminality you could really apply to someone that is hearing voices. You know what I mean? Yeah. Of so, so he never stood trial. He was in, uh, he was isolated in solitary confinement for, over five years and it exacerbated his condition. And when he passed away, I was left with this 
this kind of broken record that wasn't finished and a band that had broken up and you know trying to navigate that the first thing that i did was i quit working at pubs um, for my own sanity because it wasn't helping anything and i started working with uh, people with disabilities, adults with disabilities. And I started being a carer, I think you would call it in Britain. And then I started just talking to my community and I actually did send that record, that broken record out to this band that I discovered called Frightened Rabbit. Um, I sent it to their singer, Scott Hutchison. And he was a lovely guy and you know, we started a correspondence and I was asking him what I should do with these songs and, and if he thought they were any good and he really liked them. He invited me to his show and we kept in contact. And slowly but surely, um, you know, we got a band together and sadly later on, Scott passed away from um, mental health and suicide. So it happened yet again. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, it's been around me for decades. Yeah, yeah, it's um, something really interesting. I spoke to a um, a Kerrang journalist and author called Ian Winwood for a couple, a few episodes back, and he's just wrote this amazing book, Bill. I think you'd really like it. It's called Bodies, and it's all about um, uh, the music industry and mental health and how um, yeah. a lot of uh, really serious mental health conditions um yes. are, are hidden in plain sight basically in the yes, music, music industry you know and how there's all this stuff going on and um when behavior is any when behavior is like bizarre it's almost rewarded mm. as like a rock and roll story right but in reality mm. behind that story is a human who's probably not doing so well um uh, I, can i can i say something right here i yeah, think we're watching it we're watching it right now with kanye west yeah. And it is not dissimilar from Amy Winehouse. It was, if you go back to the Amy Winehouse era, it was like paparazzos, people following her, um, a, a, if it bleeds, it leads type of journalism, mm -hmm. journalistic approach to a human being that is isolated. And it is basically deteriorating in plain view to everybody. And you've got, it, instead of backing off, and getting like doctors in there, we're booking more tours and we're making it a headline and we're making it a tweet and we're we're scrutinizing. And as far as Kanye goes, I have long lost track or interest in his Make America Great Again stuff, his I Am A God stuff, whatever misdirected stuff is coming out of this individual um, because there's money and because there's fame and riches I think that we are completely making a terrible mistake by by printing his words at the moment. He he needs help. And I, I it's so shocking to me that Amy Winehouse was rail thin. She was doing, you know, drugs on stage. She was sniffing cocaine. Like there was footage of her doing that. And like nobody, nobody in the music industry, and a lot of people in the music industry are very intelligent. They have university degrees they're very capable people nobody stepped in and said you're getting off the road i mean if i'm not mistaken her her hit song was called rehab like yeah. this is you know this is not somebody you want to be toying with they're they're vulnerable and so you know i know that Kanye west has ruffled a lot of feathers he's he's screwed up he's offensive but i don't think that i feel like that there's a moral 
there's a moral place that we all have, but for some reason, the discard in my country, it feels like America loves a comeback story. So what we do, and I think Britain does this as well, we will build up a Princess Diana, we will build up a Amy Winehouse, we will build up a Michael Hutchins, like we'll build up whoever we want to, and then we'll start to strip them of it and cast them down back to earth and you know, as they come down like Humpty Dumpty and just shatter, and we get more followers, we get more press, more traction, and it benefits these 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 journalistic um, outlets by by viewership. But look what the cost is! Is I you know um, Amy Winehouse, um, Scotchison, Princess Diana. They're, they're, this is the sons and daughters, or the uncles and cousins. These are these people belong to a family, yeah. and like we we cannot. I I feel like is you know, like in our conscience, like as a, as a, as a modern people, we cannot continue to um, watch people deteriorate and crash down and burn, crash and burn for our own entertainment. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's very ill. It's a very ill state that I think society is in at the moment with that. Yeah, it really is. It really is. It's like letting someone become sicker and sicker because then they create more and more headlines. And I think as well as, excuse me, as well as forgetting that there's an actual human being at the center of all this, you know, someone that's clearly suffering. I think it also, it doesn't do the wider conversation of mental health, mental illness, any good, because then um, maybe saying stuff that um, isn't very nice, you know, or having like really, really strong opinions that, you know, people shouldn't really be having in, in this day and age. Um, I'm just thinking of like um, Kanye and his anti-Semitism and sure. stuff like that. Sure. But that then gets attached to people with bipolar, right? So then everyone thinks, mm. oh, everyone with bipolar, they're really outspoken. They have all these really strong, hateful views. And that's not the case at all. We, we have to, yeah. as well as separating the individual from the headlines, we have to set the, separate the individual from the diagnosis. So it's not doing anyone any favors, right? The wider conversation is suffering. It adds to the stigma. It adds to the mess. It adds, yeah. adds to the negative opinion around um, mental illness. And, you know, really, these people need help. Really. They, that's it. It's what it comes down to, right? Bill, they just need to help. <laughs> Oh, I mean, again, the zoom out, the zoom out here is that if, you know, before, before we can touch on the anti-Semitism stuff, which is clearly valid and completely scary and offensive and, and hurtful, I think that we have to look at our own moral compass as a people and outrage culture. What is outrage culture? We're all, we're all kind of, it's almost gladi- uh, gladiatorial, right? Yeah. It's like, we're, we're um, we're, we're, we're all watching these gladiators in the arena and we kind of thumbs up or thumbs down them, right? And I remember when, when I was a kid, I, was, um, I really loved boxing and I was a massive fan of um, Mike Tyson. And Mike Tyson had uh, been accused of rape. I think he, was, he, he, was, he definitely was tried and convicted. And when he came out, um, he was so wounded and um affected and institutionalized and he he would have these outbursts and it was like again like in the uh in the gladiators arena we were like you know throw him away you know um we we just we saw it again with the parkland school shooter that 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 has just recently been tried i think he got consecutive i don't know 
15 life consecutive life sentences. And it's like, wait a second though, wait, pause. This kid, I, I believe that if, if you're well, if anyone's well, and even past well, if you're a happy person, I don't think that you knowingly or consciously want to hurt others, right? Mm, yeah. So rather than like give him the damn chair, you know, like to the gallows with this kid, it's like, let's stop and ask a, a larger question. Like um, guns are legal. We've got first person shooter games. This has been, this goes back 20, 30 years to Columbine and even back to Nintendo. We've got these, these landscapes where children are, are viewing them and they're, they're participating in these games where they're just taking out human beings one by one. Is that healthy? It might be legal. Is it healthy? And if it, we deem it to be unhealthy, what are we going to do about it? Because the, it's almost like the alphabet A to Z or Z as you call it. Like the A is a kid sitting down his mom's cooking dinner and he's playing first person shooter games. Unfortunately, with some mental illness and going unchecked or unsupervised, the Z, the Z at the very end of the line is a kid uh, going into a Columbine situation where they're isolated, they're um, falling through the cracks of society. And if it's a Western affluent society as the Columbine shooters were, it goes undetected. And then we don't like the result of this terrible, you know, this terrible tragedy, but we, we don't want to pull over and look at ourselves. It's easier to just make it kind of outrage, dark entertainment. And like, and we, do you know what I mean? Like what's, yeah. what's the response? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So as a society, we almost like create the situations where this can happen. And then we blame it all on that individual and never look at why these things happen in the first place. It's, it, it, it what's what's the old saying like in uh was it insanity is repeating the same result <laughs> repeating the same but i, I forget yeah, what it's re- yeah. the same behavior expecting a different result that's it and i think i mean i it's sad to watch the kanye thing because he's the sort of um man of the hour with this stuff and it's really sad because he's completely being offensive uh and you've got this absolutely perfect scenario for um a train wreck here you've got the kardashians thing you've got a guy that he could be on any podcast and any platform that he really wants to and he's hurting you know he's, he's clearly i think his mother died uh there was a it's kind of a botched death that had happened some years ago you've got kim kardashian who's essentially famous you know this could only happen in you know, modern times, she's famous for no one really knows why he's got a ton of money and uh, his talent is like way backseat at this point. He's just a spectacle. And it makes me, it makes me kind of sad, you know, like that, that we would, uh, we're not cheering it on, but we're definitely participating in it. And it, uh, I'll tell you, man, I had a situation happen in America. Um, I've had I'm going to, I'm going to drop something on you here. That's kind of heavy, but uh, why not? Yeah. yeah. Uh, about eight months ago, I was in California and I was running an errand for my sister. And I was at a grocery store at about four o'clock in the afternoon. And California, as I'm sure you've heard is um, in a terrible situation with homelessness. And it's, it's, accelerated to the point where I don't even recognize where I'm from anymore. And the homelessness 
is very, very intense there. I'm a guy that kind of chills out in his AirPods all day and I listen to music and so on. Even with my, my earphones in, my AirPods, I'm still interrupted multiple times a day in California by mentally ill and homeless people, right? So I'm at this grocery store at four in the afternoon and I'm parking my van and I, there was a guy standing there, probably about 30 years old, tattoos, young guy, whatever. I asked him, hey man, could you, you know, mind I'm parking here if you could step off, step away from the parking space. He came up to me and said some kind of gibberish about uh, pedestrian rights or so on. And I was like, okay, buddy, let's keep it moving. You know, I got, I got, I'm running errands and I get out of the van and he walks up to me and put a pistol to my head. Wow. Yeah. And I, I raised my hands up kind of in a, like a really type of, you know, gesture. And uh, he put his pistol back in his backpack and he, he kind of uh, walked away briskly. Right. So at the moment I'm thinking, man, should I call the police? You know, I've got stuff I've got to do today. And I was so used to the lag time for the authorities to come that I just thought, look, I'm going to run my errand and then deal with it. I run my errand. I come out of the grocery store and there's a police officer there. And I guess he was looking for me. Someone else had seen this go down and called them. So the police officer asked me to get in the cop car. I've got to go identify this guy because they found him. And they put me in a cop car. I'm looking at the window that in the back of the cop car, I'd never been in the back of a cop car. There's a, there's a naked human footprint of a, of a bare foot on the smear down the window. And I'm looking out that and I'm driving, or I'm sorry, I'm riding with this cop to go identify this guy. And the cops pull up, they park me right next to this guy. He's in handcuffs against another cop car. They leave me there. I'm staring at this guy in handcuffs like, man, what have you done? Through the, through the window up to the foot with a human footprint on it. The cops go off. I hear them talking about baseball. <laughs> and I'm looking at this kid and I'm like, you have screwed your life up. Like you'll never get a passport. You're a felon. Like you're in trouble, man. And, uh, you know, we, we, I do what I need to do. I fill out the report with them. They drop me off and I go on with my day. And it, something really bothered me about this, that it was like, I remember this from my brother when my brother was in prison because my brother went missing for a while and he got into a fight and he stabbed somebody and then he went to prison. And I saw my brother's photograph in the newspaper. Um, the district attorney had saved a clip for me and it was like criminal apprehended. It was like, yes, got him. It was like this cowboyish American you know, nabbed, we got him. And I'm looking at this kid. I'm like, this is somebody's kid. Yeah. You know, I'm having all this empathy for this guy against his cop car, like what he's done to his life. And I go away. So fast forward the same year. So I'm up in Canada and something that happened that I didn't talk about uh, in my social media about the experiences was that the experience that I had was that uh, I guess about three weeks ago now, I was in my hotel room, it was Airbnb, and I heard a gunshot. And I didn't want to 
it was 11 at night. I didn't want to be a part of it. Obviously, it was a gunshot in the building, and it sounded like it was through the wall, maybe a couple um, apartments down. And I go into the hallway, and I see a guy bleeding terribly in the hallway. And it's an indigenous guy, and he had been shot a couple times. And I run over to help him, and it was bad. And I'm, I'm screaming, like, somebody call the police. Nobody would open their door. They were afraid, understandably. And I had to make a tourniquet and like help this guy because he was, I was afraid he was going to bleed out. The, the authorities didn't come for 45 minutes. And uh, in the end, um, the guy lived, they finally came and I wrote an essay about it. And uh, a friend of mine thought maybe we should, maybe we should put this in the paper. And the one thing that stood out to me was that the next day, the police didn't take my, um, my information or whatever the day of this shooting, but they got in touch with me the next day and they called me at one o'clock AM in the morning. Okay. Okay. So I pick up the phone and I'm like, hello, this is William McCarthy. Hello. How can I help you? And they're like, hello, this is constable, blah, 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 the police department. And I'm like, why are you calling me at 1 AM? And the guy says to me, well, I just started my shift and I hung up on him. I'm like, is this how marginalized people get treated? You know? And again, it was like they, the, the mother of this fellow that got shot found me on Facebook and saying, thank you. You saved my son, this and that. And I told her like, let's be careful, miss, if you don't mind um, me saying so let's be careful that they found the shooter, right? Let's have empathy for the shooter because he's so misdirected in his life that for whatever squabble happens between these guys, he thought it was a good idea to come and shoot somebody. So from my experience being related to somebody that was incarcerated, like this shooter, society can't say, ha ha, nabbed, we got him. It's like, no, let's approach this differently. This poor family, uh, let's have empathy for them that their, their son is going to go away for years. And let's have empathy culturally that this has happened and that in our society that he had access to guns, he was misdirected, and this happens. Let's have empathy for not just the victim, but also the shooter and try to approach it that way. And I, told, I, I, I wrote this to the mother, and she was receptive to it. And I... I'm I'm not trying to be a good Samaritan here. I'm just saying that if we look at social challenges, like these people were clearly immersed in, I'd like it very much in my lifetime if we could start adjusting the way that we approach this type of tragedy, because it's yeah. clearly social challenges and mental health once again. Yeah, yeah, completely. I mean, the key word there, Bill, is 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 empathy, isn't it? You know, and yeah. it's so lacking in um in modern society but it is that's how we that's how we connect to each other that's how we understand to each other and see the world through other people's eyes it all comes down to that empathy empathy and compassion you know is just so 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 important for us to um to learn how to how to have those those tools i suppose i really i think you know i know you're going through a lot in great britain with your government um i'm american clearly we are going through a lot and have been. And I just feel like I see this divided people story again and again. I know there's a rise of the right in Europe. 
I know that people are feeling they're pitted against each other almost. And I, I almost, I'm, I'm asking for mental health reasons. I mean, I came to a, to a crossroads after the first gun incident in 2022 with the kid against the cop car, uh, where I looked at it and I thought, hmm, okay, I'm not okay with that. I'm sure that's traumatized me in, in, in ways that I can't even process right now. And what happened was I, I'd like to consider myself, uh, even before being American, um, whatever that means, I like to consider myself a human being. <laughs> and then I like to consider myself a global citizen, someone who's connected to the rest of the planet. And then I happen to be born in America. But as a global citizen, what I, what I have long done um, as a creative is I constantly am listening to world news because I want to know what's going on in the planet, on, on the planet um, in which I live. But I had to actually, for mental health, I started getting tons of anxiety after the gun thing, the, for the pistol thing. And I was like, where is this coming from? And I started getting this very doom scrolling, doom doomed kind of dimming perspective about the world. Obviously, Putin, um, there's just, there was just so much going on. Um, yet another uh, boat full of refugees trying to get into Italy. Uh, there was a, a, you know, multiple schoolyard shootings in America that had happened. Um, there, there was that big lorry full of Mexican people coming over illegally in America trying to find work. You've got Trump in the background. And I was like, what is happening to me? And for my own mental health, I A, marched against schoolyard shootings in California, but B, I had to actually, for my own mental health, stop watching news just yeah. to get my own marbles back and say, hey, before I can be um, present as a global citizen, I have to look after my own brain because my own brain is not um accommodating all of this it was like a it was like a you know a flood of just badness just doom doom and gloom and i had to put my foot down and say for me to manage i've got to make some decisions here and i stopped watching the news and it has really helped me out yeah yeah definitely that was my biggest survival technique through the through the pandemic was just to switch the mm. telly off and just focus on yeah. just controlling the controllables and being with my family and mm. like getting on and, and getting through it and that made a huge difference to me but i think you know i mentioned before that we um you know originally we come from tribes and maybe these tribes you- would have been like 50 to 100 people so really the human design you're only really kind of designed to know a certain amount of people and this mm. idea that you can just flick on the flick on the television and suddenly know what is going on all around the world is I just don't, I'm just not sure we're, we're built for that. And then swap out that the things that we're learning are not positive things. So we're not really built for it. And everything that's coming in, you know, down, downloading onto the hard drive is, is negative, challenging, upsetting stuff. It's a lot, man. You know, the world is, the world is a lot right now. Hey, eh? Hey, well, it's funny you say that, man. Uh, I, I was having a chuckle, uh, I saw something online that was like this, this, this like inventor guy. He was like, I find that walking is the most inefficient travel possible. And we have, we here at blah, blah, blah industries have developed the, the walking, these, uh, these electric walking shoes that can up your speeds of walking to seven to 10 miles per hour. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, if it's not for the drones or for SpaceX and all this, now we're getting shoes that will, 
make us walk faster. And I was thinking, you know, I, I was having a chuckle because I recently read that males only started wearing deodorant in the 1940s. Oh, okay. so, so yes. So women long, like, I guess deodorant was developed in 1888. Uh, it was called mum, M-U-M. And women started putting on this cream on their armpit, like, you know, to make them more feminine or sweet smelling or whatever. And men caught on, you know, 60 years later or 50 years later, whatever, you know, <laughs> but better late than ever. But the fact is, is that in our grandparents' generation, males only started wearing deodorant. And here we are, you know, not even a hundred years later, and there's drone strikes and <laughs> electric shoes and app this, and you can't find any fucking people to help you in a train station. And there's all this, this shenanigans going on. And it's like, whoa, man, it's all going very quickly. And again, mental health. Is there anybody, is there almost like a traffic cop that directs traffic with the old uh, day glow vest on? Is there any internet moral traffic cop to say, pause, Sir, step to the side. You've had enough. We're going to have to put you on the bench there. We need you to go out, you know, go on some R&R. I want you to uh, get into botany, look at the stars. I don't know. Just get your head together. There isn't. We have, you know, we're kind of out here by ourselves and, um, you know, we're, we're vulnerable. I hate to say it. I know that's not the most New Yorker thing I could tell you. The New Yorkers <laughs> would be like, you know, hey, bro, it just is what it is. What are you going to do? Very, you know, <laughs> pragmatism, pragmatism. But I do have to stand up and say something. You know, I'm not being a softy. I'm not a, a fragile little flower. I'm actually saying you're right. Like we still have, what is it, Darwin's point on the top of our ears? Like there's, you know, genetically, we, we still have these, these uh, clues that, we haven't really even been upright that long. So how the hell are we going to digest Elon Musk at the moment? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, very much so. Yeah. I always think with like technology and social media and all this modern stuff, <clears throat> I always think it, it always reminds me of Jurassic Park, Bill, you know, and that's that saying in Jurassic Park when he says we spent so long thinking about um, if we could, we didn't stop to think about if we should. And I always, yeah. whenever I see something new getting announced and you just think, oh, this just sounds like trouble. This is, uh, this, they've not even built it yet. And it sounds like it's going to be trouble, you know, but yeah. um, with a, as a, as an artist, as a creative, when the world mm. is sort of going mad like this, you know, when you're feeling the, the pressure, how important is having a, a creative outlet to kind of, to, to balance the books and to kind of keep you um, in a, in a better place, in a well place. You know, man, that's, that's, that's an interesting, uh, there's a bridge there to the talks that I was giving the schools. And I was saying, you know, expression, expression really comes from creativity. I think creativity can be conscious and often subconscious. And I was talking to these kids and I was saying, well, you tell people what happened when you went to the store, that there was traffic and you, you tell a joke that is all that all is all uh, improv on the spot. You're, you're telling a story, you're embellishing stuff, you're, you know, there's a punchline, there's an arc to it. Like people are constantly a lot more creative than they really give themselves credit for. Um, I notice, you know, even putting a bumper sticker on your car, that's a form of expression, which, you know, are you gonna wear your plaid underwear today or are you gonna wear your solid print? Um, like we're always expressing ourselves and, you know, there, you don't have to be playing a lute or a uh, fiddle to be create, to be expressing yourself. You don't have to do a finger paint or a, a sculpture. Um, I think that there's, I think that what happens 
you know, if we go back to a, a really grotesque scenario like Columbine, right? Like these kids, um, you know, there was almost like a, a combustion. Um, there was steam filling up inside of them. Um, there was there was feelings about their environment and they needed to release it and get it out, right? I know it's easy in modern culture. It seems like the target of late has been white, um, white Western males. I know that's like in the crosshairs and I totally understand where that's coming from. But I think that before, before we can even, like the Amy Winehouse uh, example earlier, um, before we can even attach like to what gender and who's like the aggressor, I think we have to look at the human experience and say, hey, wait a second, wait a second. We're filling ourselves up with all this, um, all this data, all this steam and all this stuff. And how do we get it out? Yes, there's yoga mats. Yes, there's the gym. Yes, there's, you know, uh, listening to podcasts of orca sounds and whatever, you know, there's a lot of stuff we can do, but how do we look after ourselves? Not everyone can afford therapy. Not everyone can afford a psychiatrist, not everybody, you know, so we have to really address the human condition. And, you know, I love, I, I love the internet. Hallelujah. I love Steve Jobs. I love Zuckerberg. That's great. You guys are enterprising, uh, you know, inventive minds, but what's it doing to us? That's the higher the zoom out question. I don't think, I think it's David Bowie talked about it a lot. It was like, you know, he's like, I, I think there's a famous clip of him talking. He's like, I think it's going to do equally as much good as it will bad. And I think he's right. It's a, it's very much a Pandora's box. I, I, you know, I was listening to Spotify the other day. I love podcasts. I think they're phenomenal, which is why I'm working with you today. But, you know, there's also soft porn. Did you know that about Spotify? You can no, find no. some... Like, uh, excuse me, ma'am, I'm here to work on your uh, the cable for your television. Oh, I didn't see the negligee that you're wearing. Let me put oh my, my toolbox down. I God. swear. I swear, man. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, wow, look at humans once again. Like, we've got this platform. <laughs> we can talk about news. We can listen to, you know, Yo-Yo Ma at live at Red Rocks or the Acropolis. We've got, uh, you know, Yanni. And then we've got, you know you know girth brooks and thruster and whatever whatever the damn moniker is it's like we can't help ourselves from being shitty yeah. as human beings we <laughs> always have to take into this fucking place I, um yeah so yeah that's a scary thought it's a scary thought that yeah, yeah. people are gonna ruin uh <laughs> ruin spotify for us yeah 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 now we got <laughs> soft porn now we got some soft porn for you yeah, put that in your suv on your road trip Oh mate, scary stuff. This um, stuff. Yeah, it really is, mate. I'm Bill. I'm really conscious of your time, and I want yeah. to um, I want to ask you one more thing um, before I before I let you go, mate. But um, it's something that's always really associated with you with your music is mm. um, is the live show, and that's kind sure. of something that you've always been known for. And as someone that's has seen you live. Um, it's always fascinated me. I'm probably asking you this more from like a, a personal point than a, from like my listeners. This one's for me, but um, mm. is I've always like the the live show is it's intense. It's everything. You just bring it like like nothing I've ever seen. And I've always thought, what does Bill do with that afterwards? 
you know, when you have those shows, you know, them shows, you know, where everything connects. And um, I, my wife and I were at the, um, and I'm, I'm saying this because we're like a week past Halloween and it was mm. Halloween in Liverpool like six years ago with the Augustine mm. Farewell show. My wife and I were at that gig. And the, the um, I know that was a particularly um, emotional gig, but as a rule, your gigs had that vibe to it. And I was just wondering like how you like decompress after that. Where do you go after that massive sort of that, cathartic outpouring live experience it's hmm. a great question man you know it's funny with my augustine's brothers eric panos and rob you know we had this thing that when it was a job well done um we didn't say much you know it was like we're kind of sweaty and backstage and uh it was like nice one smashed it and it was like it was probably a maximum of five words and a hug and that was it because i think that we as i guess as craftsmen or in a very workmanlike perspective it was like that's that's what we aspire to do and we've done our our bit for the night right so let's uh you know go have 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 a pint say hi to some people go to bed i think for me um i typically we'll go back to my accommodations or whatever and I'll, I'll i'll maybe reach out to a couple loved ones and i'll just go to sleep and i guess it's something that i don't think about a whole lot you know i that uh you would be really surprised you know i um being a a singer or a lyricist i think it's it's a funny thing with humans we don't often know what our breath well we don't know what our breath smells like you know it's like that's a weird defect with the the way we're built it's like do i have bad breath do i not have bad breath and i can tell when my when i do the you know put on some deodorant um deodorant once again it's like i you don't really know you don't know the effect that you're having all you can do is really just say hey i think i've hit my mark for what my standard is or that i'm shooting for and i'm going to roll up my sleeves tomorrow and see if i can continue it and i guess in a kind of Springsteenist perspective, Bruce has talked about over the years that it's it's a reciprocal conversation that he's been having with his his audience for you know I guess since the late '60s for decades and decades to where he's seen his shows people and then their kids and now their grandkids you know and that that conversation means everything to him and I would say not to piggyback you know, too much on Bruce's philosophy, but I think that I'll have good nights. I'll have not so good nights. Hopefully I practice or I have worked hard enough in my life that the standard is high, even when it's not um, everything I was shooting for, but that I could go to sleep proud of myself that I've continued the conversation and I've held up my side of this with the people that I'm lucky enough to perform for. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful way to put it, man. And, uh, yeah. And it, Hey, Springsteen, if there's anyone who's going to know about it, right. It's, uh, yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. it's uh, it, looking back, you know, in the, in the Mount Rushmore of um, contributors to the American songbook, I would say, even though he's such a beloved guy and I feel definitely not that original celebrating him because everybody does he, looking back now, he has done such strong work and for so long, um, we're really lucky to have him because he's gone almost in a way in almost in a way that Sean Penn has with acting. 
he started out as kind of a privileged young guy out in Hollywood. He married Madonna. He was just sort of this, but what he, you know, with El Chapo and Hurricane Katrina, he really has inhabited this other place and he's taken the conversation further than normal actors do. And I think Springsteen has, you know, campaigning for Obama and doing all the stuff that he's done. He's taken the template uh, of what a musician can be and he's really furthered it, which I think we all benefit from. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's inspiring to see isn't it? anything like that. Like we talked before about the the state that the world's in and, uh, you know, yeah. I supposed to caveat that. If you look, you can find a bit of goodness, right? You can find people out there doing wonderful things. And, um, and uh, yeah, and that kind of hopefully balances the books a, a little bit, mate, yeah? balances the books a little bit. Yeah, and I, maybe for us as, as, as human beings, maybe the way forward is through empathy, care, um, value, um, valuing the quality that we see. And just take a moment, if you can, out there, if you're at the farmer's market and you look at this guy making, for example, some maple syrup or honey or whatever his wares are, his goods are, just let him know, you know, like let him know that he's doing good work because I think that's the strangest thing as a, as a creative sometimes is, you know, when we're really out there doing it, like I am kind of traveling around, you don't often, there isn't really a, a place where you can hear it all in one place. And I, what I try to do is when I go out in the world and I see people really as a force of good in the world, I try to really champion them. I try to tell them, let them know it, it costs me nothing to do. So all, you know, just keep that going because there is such, there's a lot of misdirected stuff out there. Um, and I just, yeah, I guess the, the way we can give back or acknowledge and try to get this planet hopefully on track is just let people who are doing, um, you know, work of value, just let them know that it really helps. Yeah. Yeah. It certainly does. It can be a small thing for, uh, for the, for the person, you know, making the, you know, saying it or doing it, but for the person receiving that comment, it can be a really big thing. I mean, you mentioned your friend, uh, Scott Hutchinson before, you know, and that mm. whole tiny changes on earth, man. It's just the most beautiful way to say it. I think beautiful way to say it. And I think Scott, you know, it's funny when you write songs, it could have been on a Wednesday. He could have written it before lunch. That little, that just that little tagline, um, he, it could have been a concept he was thinking about, you know, on the train home and he just plopped it in a song and his life force and everything that he gave, um, people attached that to his name as a philosophy that Scott lived by. And, you know, whether it's apt or it's a completely great fit um, or not, it's still an association that's very positive. And I think that Scott, knowing him, he would have chuckled at that and he probably been, would have been totally fine for that uh, about it would have been fine if that was the case. He would have kind of smiled about that, I'm sure. I'm not sure what my legacy is. I'm not sure what all of our legacy is, but I do know. I was just chatting with uh, a, a fella about a project in 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 Brussels the past couple of days. And I was just saying, you know, we, we gave each other a hug goodbye and we both were having our final words. And I just said, you know, we don't know how long we're here for. And I guess the the vibe is just let's try to make something beautiful with the time that we have man yeah yeah for real man yeah that leads me on a really um really easily to wrap this up bill but what have you got what have you got coming next mate what's um what's on the cards for bill mccarthy well i'll tell you man um 
I have some uh, tours coming up that are really exciting. I'm not going to, uh, I will not just some of their surprises. So those will be announced um, in the next, I guess, eight weeks. I've actually really passionate um, check back in. I'm going to be launching um, my own podcast. I've long had one for, I'm on Patreon and I've been on Patreon for since 2017 and I do a podcast for them. But I think there's been an awakening that's happened with me when I was speaking to those kids up in Canada and that I realized for the first time in my career, um, there's actually teenagers who are following me now and, and checking in. And uh, I've never had that before. And I want to give something back, I guess, to not just the rock and roll and indie rock community, of which I've been uh, a part of for the last couple of decades, but I want to do something a little bit um, more all ages and uh, inclusive. So I'm going to be starting a podcast and it should be out in the next couple of weeks. And I've got new music coming in 2023 and I've got some other surprises coming. So I think that's my work. And I feel like that's, that's it, it's, did I go out and find it or did it find me? I'm not sure, but it's really fun. I love, um, I love having a drink and singing songs. And, but I think speaking for those schools, it just, I see a whole other space in the world um, that I think musicians don't often realize what their capabilities are and their potential is past just playing for 90 minutes on stage. I think there's a whole lot more that we can do. And as we've been talking about in this discussion, the planet is in its state that it's in. My country's in the state that it's in. Your country's in the state that it's in. And perhaps we should, we as creatives or people who, uh, maybe who have a little bit of visibility out there, maybe there's a way that we can push forward a little bit and try to just lend a bit of perspective um, to the world at large, because I think it's really needed right now. Yeah. And I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to sound too, I guess, corny about it, but it, it's the truth. Like I, I, all the cities, I mean, I was born in California. I've lived in New York half my life and half my life in California. Both of those cities are inundated with, you know, gentrification, the haves and the half thoughts. There's, there's, you know, health insurance, and coverage and human rights stuff going on. There's the global topic of um, just what's going on with the greenhouse effect and global warming and all this stuff. It's like this, we, we, we are needed. We need players on the field right now, man. <laughs> I've never, <laughs> I've never thought about it, you know, until, and I'm really, and I have, I have this space to do something right now and I'm not on the tour bus and I'm not getting dragged behind the cart from city to city to city. I'm in a little bit of a different situation now. And I, I think it's time I'm raising my hand, like, all right, dude, put me in coach. I, yeah. I think there's, there's work to be done here. Oh, mate, that's beautiful. That's lovely. And uh, yeah, I can't, I can't wait to see what you do with it, mate. I'm really, uh, really excited. Thank you so much for joining me today, mate. I cannot tell you how much I enjoyed that on a, on a professional level as a, a podcaster. It was a great episode and on a personal level as a fan of uh, a fan of the band, a fan of your music. Um, yeah, it was a big deal for me today. So thank you very much. I'm touched. I'm delighted to hear it, man. And I'm glad to help this cause. It's a, it's a really valuable one. And thank you for the work that you're doing, Tom. Oh, mate, my pleasure. Thank you, man. Thank you very much.
to big up to the proper mental podcast. <laughs> the proper mental podcast. <laughs>